Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, our topic today is the complex interplay between school choice, segregation, and gentrification. You know, it's interesting. I would imagine that some listeners will hear that and think that school choice is being used as a mechanism to combat uh, school segregation. Oftentimes, that is something that uh, the charter supporters, for instance, will talk about. But as it turns out, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Well, a little bit later in the episode, we're going to be discussing some of the new research that's come out looking at cities like New York and Denver. And uh, Jack has promised that he is going to introduce us to that research in a very non-jargony way. Isn't that right, Jack? I believe that you wrote the acronym KISS on a piece of paper in front of me, and I'm not going to guess what that stands for. Our special guest today is sociologist Carla Shedd. She's the author of a book called Unequal City that looked at housing policy and education policy in Chicago through the eyes of students who were impacted by them. And these days, she's focused on another unequal city, New York. She's on the faculty at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, and she recently moved to a neighborhood that's rapidly gentrifying in Harlem. Here she is talking about a weekend visit to a Harlem playground with her family, that got her thinking. We moved from university housing from my former employer and like many other people who are looking for more space and, (laughs) um, you know, to live in the city, we went northward. um, And Harlem was this um, amazing kind of combination of old Harlem, old Washington Heights, new Harlem with gentrification, seeing new restaurants coming in, but then also understanding that people don't always mix together, even if they're living in a very mixed neighborhood. So it was striking for me to walk onto the playground, and that day it was a little overcast, so you didn't have the older um, Latino guys playing the dominoes that they play right outside of the playground, and I noticed they weren't there. And um, then I noticed this big, like, birthday banner, and I said, oh, someone's having a party. That's great. But it was remarkable that every person I looked at at this party of about eight to ten kids and at least as many grown-ups, everyone looked to be white, could be perceived as white, and like no Asian, no Hispanic, no brown, no black, nothing. And I just thought this is really striking for me to be in Harlem, real Harlem, (laughs) not just fake Harlem, and to see in this party of people that there is no one who is discernibly of color um, is remarkable. And then to see the parents who were at the playground with their children, we were all black or brown people sort of on the outskirts of their party because they had taken over a few benches and, you know, it's what people do if they set up for a party. So I'm like, oh, look at all of us um, watching them. And this is a different type of spectacle, you know. It just really gave me this moment of I'm new to the neighborhood, but I feel some connection to it. And as an African-American woman, like I would belong to a Harlem demographic. Um, But I also felt like, hey, this is New Harlem and they belong too. But what does it mean for us to be in this space and 
um, interact with each other, and I just didn't see an opening for that. And that's what really concerned me. I noted at the outset that Shed is a sociologist, and that's important here. It means that she's always thinking about social forces and how various institutions come together, even when she's just hanging around at the playground with her kids. And what Shed observed that weekend wasn't just a birthday party, but an example of what she describes as our increasingly a la carte culture. In other words, you can choose to live in a neighborhood without participating in its main institutions, including its schools. And even if, you know, it's it's an amazing moment where housing is no longer bundled with schooling and your social life. And so when I thought of saying this really is like the a la carte method of living, you know, in this kind of gentrified phase that you could say, hey, I have a parking garage pass. I'm okay. I can opt out of, you know, all these neighborhood things. I can not go to the neighborhood school and have my child in private school. I don't even have to socially interact with people at the playground because I can invite my friends who maybe gentrified Crown Heights or, you know, they can come from outside the city to my party and have my social life remain intact. And so what I wrote about in Unequal City and what I was thinking about when studying in Chicago and now studying in New York is it really is the work of schools that will either um, distort the reality, so have kids together when normally they would not ever come together because they're of different racial and ethnic groups and class backgrounds, and schools can be this draw for them to be integrated, or schools can do the work of continuing um, the stratification and separation. So it's always interesting to see how schools operate in either furthering um, segregation and and increasing homogeneity or perhaps disrupting it. And, um, you know, post-Brown v. Board, I think people still have just such faith in schools disrupting segregation that we forget (laughs) that, you know, there are other parts of social life to be considered. Now, Jack, I want to bring you back in. You've been patiently waiting with a big stack of research papers in front of you. So as I mentioned earlier, the relationship between school choice, gentrification, and segregation is complicated. But there's new research coming out that seems to be pointing in a particular direction. Break it down for us. Yeah, for a long time, we've had research showing us that uh, white flight to the suburbs was driven in part by uh, a concern around school quality and in many ways a concern about uh, the increasing diversification of city schools and a kind of conflation of school demography with school quality. That in many cases, parents didn't like what was happening uh, to the demography of city schools and took that as a sign of quality, which of course it isn't, uh, and then packed up and moved out to the suburbs. Um, recently, we have seen a return of middle class and upper income white people particularly uh, to cities. And some speculated that this would be uh, a way of actually um, desegregating urban schools of increasing the number of white students in schools as well as middle and upper income students in schools. But one of the interesting findings that continues to emerge from social science research is that in many cases, parents are returning 
two cities. These would be upper income and middle income white parents uh, who for a long time had not been uh, urban residents, that they are returning to cities, uh, but in many cases they are doing so while utilizing school choice policies that allow them to opt out of their neighborhood schools. And so what we're seeing is a kind of integration in many cases, uh, although it is often leading to gentrification of urban neighborhoods without any of the attendant effects on schools. In her last book, Unequal City, Shedd looked at how school closings and the demolition of public housing in Chicago work together to upend and reshape the lives of kids. Now she's focused on how schools in New York City intersect with the juvenile justice system and how those intersections relate to students' neighborhoods. In other words, a school is never just a school. No, I mean, I think we can consider how these various institutions come together. And that's the work I'm interested in doing as a sociologist. I'm not looking piecemeal at just schools and just classrooms within schools. I'm saying, hmm, where are these classrooms drawing kids and what neighborhoods are they coming from? Is the context from which, you know, they're traveling from home to school drastically different or is it the same? And I think, um, much of what we need to do is think about how policy should connect those worlds. And um, this is so important to me as I'm thinking of my New York City project, that seeing how the neighborhood and the schools come into the juvenile courtrooms. And so they're connected. Judges are assessing these kids based on who they are and where they're from and what kind of family situation they have, but also what neighborhood they live in to make a legal decision about whether or not to hold a kid in custody prior to their trial for, you know, maybe stealing a cell phone or um, having a fight at school. So all of these worlds come together, but it's very hard for researchers to put them together. And that's sort of the contribution I want to make as a sociologist who cares about how these contexts come together. And in this particular moment when you could say, I can move to a neighborhood and I don't have to worry about my child going to a school that may not be um, highly ranked because I could pay to put them in private school. I don't have to worry about it. And um, that is a great privilege. And it really separates you from the people who wholesale have to buy into where they live and think about their lives sort of um, being grounded in that particular space. And when we can think about schools that are disconnected from actual neighborhoods, I think that's a big problem. That new report about school choice and segregation in New York City really conveyed a sense of a city whose kids are on the move. 40% of kindergarten students attend a school other than the one that's nearby. That's some 27,000 five-year-olds moving around the city every day. I asked Shed what she thinks that means for the future of the neighborhoods those kids come from. But yeah, what does it mean to have, you know, suburban neighborhoods where people have still paired, you know, the public school system with the taxes they're paying and they're investing in those places? And then if you have this a la carte version, you don't have to invest in the community. You don't have to make connections to people walking down the street. You won't know anyone because you're shuttling your kid to a school outside of um, the neighborhood. And I think, you know, that's, 
something as a parent I'll have to deal with as I think about where to put my second kid in school um, because the first one is in in an independent school outside of our neighborhood and we moved after um, he was already in that school. And so what do we do with this next little one? Will I have a sibling study where she goes to the neighborhood school up the street or will, you know, like it makes my life easier for them both to be in the same school, but it's a different tension and a different question as someone who studies public institutions and is now doing it from an amazing public university um, and from a department of sociology and urban education. So I'm in this very different moment of thinking, what is my research life? Um, um, how does it influence and affect what I do and what my family will do in our lives? And that playground moment just made it clear that I'm one of those people too. Like I could have the privilege to kind of come into this neighborhood and figure out how much and how deeply I will be connected to it. Jack, listening to Carla just now, I was reminded of another sociologist. I think I have a thing for them. Julia Burdick-Will, who's at Johns Hopkins, looked at students in Chicago, and she found that while poor students were moving all over the city to go to school, their more affluent peers were really staying put. And I want to read a quote from her because I think it really gets to the heart of this issue. Here's Julia Burdick-Will. We think of choice as a thing of privilege, but what we see is that there is a privilege of not having having to choose. In districts where there is intra-district school choice, there is often a preference given to people who live closest to the school. And so even though choice policies often open up schools, um, there is still the fact that real estate prices are a major constraining factor with regard to getting into a school. So we see this in lots of places where a school will develop a reputation for being a good school, real estate around that school will then skyrocket in its price. And even though people can choice into that school, uh, the, the first priority goes to residents within what is often called a walk zone. And as a result of that, um, many families who had thought maybe they would send their kids to that school, no longer have that school on their lists. Um, and so it is interesting that the talk about school choice uh, is often uh, neglectful of the fact that many families want above anything else other than just having a good school just to be able to let their kids walk to school. There is a heated debate taking place in New York City at this very moment about admissions to the city's elite exam schools. Students now gain entry on the basis of a single standardized test, and black and Hispanic students who make up the vast majority of students in the public schools are woefully underrepresented at these specialized high schools. But as Shed has been following the debate, she noticed something missing from the conversation, neighborhoods. The emphasis is almost entirely on the options and prospects of individual students. And it does show stratification and how comfortable people are with it if they benefit from it. So um, I heard, um, I saw on Twitter where Nicole Hannah-Jones said, 
what would it mean for us not to even have these types of schools? And that's the kind of leveling up question that many other scholars and, and education activists, I think, are putting forward. Like, why shouldn't these options be available everywhere? And if we are okay with only eight schools and a select amount of kids getting these privileges, that says a lot about who we are as a society, that we would be okay um, with writing off the rest of the kids with something um, that you wouldn't want for yourself. And, you know, my question is, how do we sort of build up the neighborhood institutions um, so we could equalize both opportunities and options? Like, that would truly make it a choice. It's not a choice if there's this test mechanism that is the selection, and we know that it's informed by income and resources and race and all these other attributes. That doesn't make it meritocratic. It doesn't make it fair that these kids who then can jump that hurdle are then given those opportunities that other kids could benefit from. So this debate, I am so glad it's happening, but it's really showcasing how comfortable we as a society can be with stratification and inequality. And this is where, you know, it really um, shows that. So what do exam school admissions have to do with an a la carte approach to living in the city? Shed says everything. These schools make it attractive to get a quote-unquote public education, but because they're both selective and stratified, they end up looking and feeling more like private schools. It shows that we have given up in thinking of how we equalize the, you know, first site of socialization, the home and the neighborhood and the community. And instead, we think that we could fix all these other social ills, whether it's disinvestment in neighborhoods and services, um, and then, you know, hold up the school as this place where, hey, you know, we have a captive population, and that could be used many different ways, um, particularly from my perspective. But here is where we can invest our energies, and we still see failure. I mean, Brown is still has not reached this promise of, you know, integration and diversity and this, you know, amazing kind of learning um, um, world. And so what are we doing now? I think we're still making it worse. And I think what's interesting has been to see different metrics of how we measure schools and understand different schools. And I'm always a fan of looking at what's the percentage of black and brown kids in the school, because that will tell you a lot. It will tell you about discipline um, policies. It will tell you about the presence of police. It will tell you about what services are provided. And I think that's what matters. If we're saying that there's a school that we see as elite and a specialized school, and it's, you know, um, almost empty of black and brown children, that says a lot about who we care about and who we don't care about. Um, and then why can't we think of leveling up and giving the same resources to young people across different types of neighborhoods and across different types of schools. I mean, there have been all these studies out of North Carolina where everyone gets the gifted curriculum and they do well. You know, or we could see the kind of exchange of social support services and counseling services for school policing. And then we wonder, oh, wow, these kids (laughs) don't do so well on test scores if that's the metric by which we're measuring their success. So there's some problems and there's a mismatch and there is a lot of denial about all the inputs that 
we see missing. And Noliwe Rooks' book on cutting school, you know, is remarkable in kind of making this argument that we will disinvest into young people's services and then we'll measure them on the back end on all these attributes that we have not invested in. And then those who do well have gotten the resources and those who don't have not. Listening to Shed talk about our increasingly a la carte culture reminded me of our current Secretary of Education. Remember that 60 Minutes interview Betsy DeVos did in the spring? One of the arguments she made was that, quote, we should be funding and investing in students, not in school buildings, not in institutions, not in systems. They are not viewing their work as that of a system and that of something that is a structure. And I think that is the most disturbing element of this is that they think every individual will be able to choose the school and the program that works best for them. And they don't want to see the forest. They only want to concentrate on the trees. And I think that is so damaging. If We're talking about someone who will set federal policy and guidelines for how we think about whole communities and whole populations to then say, oh, here, let's give them the individual choice. And we know there are different ways that people navigate Um, these structures depending on their background and their resources and their networks. Um, So it is quite remarkable to me that we are still continuing um, to to devise policy in a way that doesn't account for um, social structures and for knowing there could be wholesale benefits to communities or damages done. Um, so I know they don't trust these other entities because there's no control over them. And it actually might be kind of equitable. <laughs> it actually might increase opportunity if we invested in um, these other pieces instead of tightening um, the kind of opportunity structures that people will have to figure out how to navigate. And if you count, you know, everyone as an individual and think about, what they could do and what they end up doing, you don't have to understand that you're doing um, full-scale damage to full communities because you can highlight those individual failures or individual successes. That was Carla Shedd. She's an associate professor of sociology and urban education at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She's the author of Unequal City, Race, Schools, and Perceptions of Injustice. And now she's at work on a big new project about young people, schools, and New York City's juvenile justice system, which I cannot wait to hear more about. I'm obviously a Carla Shedd super fan. And Jack and I will be right back with a few final thoughts. Jack, as everyone in the world knows by now, you and I are writing a book together on the ideas that animate Betsy DeVos et al. So we spend whole days immersed in her dream of unbundling education from institutions. And what she argues is that she just wants to give people who aren't rich the luxury of opting out of their local schools, something they've been doing for a long time. In many cases, uh, People want to be able to assemble uh, the most privileged kind of environment for themselves available. And that, of course, does require a kind of a la carte approach unless you are truly a, you know, one percenter or one tenth of one percenter. Um, And, you know, they want to use the market 
as a way of getting there. Uh, and so, you know, historically, many parents had used private schools as a way of unbundling uh, schools from neighborhoods. Uh, but choice policies have allowed them to do the same. And one of the observations that I've made uh, has been that, you know, it's quite interesting that there's a kind of phenomenon where people will choose to live in neighborhoods that they don't entirely like. They like some aspect of the neighborhood, um, but the rest of it they would prefer to change. And if they can't change it, then what they'd like to do is uh, exercise choice, uh, often through market mechanisms, to unbundle and to you know, cobble together uh, these other aspects of neighborhood life for themselves, like a school. Uh, without buying into uh, or investing in, metaphorically speaking, uh, their neighborhood school, um, and you know that kind of smacks of real estate speculation, right? That you know you're you're choosing to buy a home in a place that you don't like today, but that ten or twenty years from now might be tolerable to you. And one of the things uh, that I think supports this is that many people will send their kids to the neighborhood preschool. Um, or to the neighborhood school for first or second grade. And then they'll choose between unbundling, or if they can't unbundle, they'll just pack up and move. Um, but you know that they aren't bought into the neighborhood enough to actually stay there for the duration of their children's education. We did an episode last year about your effort to help come up with a better measure of school quality, starting right here in the city where you live, Somerville, Massachusetts, and really thinking about how schools relate to neighborhoods and the city. In some ways, it seems like your work tries to disrupt the kind of a la carte culture that Carla Shedd was talking about. Even as you're in a city that's gentrifying really rapidly, are you having any luck? <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the things that's a little bit frustrating is that the landscape is always shifting, right? That um, you can move to a place and really love it as it is. Uh, move there because you don't want anything to change. And by virtue of your showing up, you then have changed the landscape. And make that neighborhood more attractive to people who wouldn't have moved there without you being there. Are you saying that people are moving to Somerville because of Jack Schneider? Because <laughs> that seems highly unlikely to me. Well, you know, yeah, you should walk around the neighborhood and do a little informal surveying. I think you'll be surprised. But um, but no, I mean, you know, it's, it's like the research on, you know, what, on early adopters and, you know, people who come on board that, you know, you see the same thing in cities where um, there will be people who are uh, politically, philosophically really bought into the neighborhoods they live in, but who can signal unintentionally to other people that, you know, hey, this neighborhood is safe for middle-class people or white people or um, that this is the kind of neighborhood that 10 years from now will look a lot different, despite the fact that a lot of people move there because they don't want it to look different at all. Uh, and so one of the things that we've seen in our neighborhood is that actually the demography of the school in the early grades has begun to change. And this is a pretty common pattern that people see in gentrifying neighborhoods, um, oftentimes to their pleasure. 
that they're really pleased with that. And then uh, there tends to be a split in the school community where folks who have been there for a long time feel like they're being pushed out. Um, and that's exactly what's happening in a lot of cases. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a troubling part of American life that, uh, you know, because renters don't have the same kind of protections that homeowners have, that, uh, you know, real estate uh, often, particularly in cities, um, fluctuates so wildly that it drives, you know, whole segments of the American population out of contention for it, um, that schools... Uh, are perceived as uh, a rare commodity, at least good schools, um, and that race is often used as a proxy for school quality. All of this leads to urban neighborhoods and other neighborhoods as well shifting really rapidly in terms of what they look like and what the character of the neighborhood is, and often in ways that, uh, that undermine the thing that made that neighborhood special for people who had been there for a long time as well as people who opted to live in the neighborhood and hoped that it would stay as it is. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens here in Somerville, one of the most rapidly gentrifying cities in America. Um, but certainly whatever happens here won't be any different than what we see playing out in other places like, you know, Brooklyn or uh, East Los Angeles where, you know, populations had been there for many generations and are now facing the prospect of not being able to raise their kids in the neighborhoods that they were raised in. Well, this topic has been, you know, one one of my sort of obsessions since I started writing about education. I went to Chicago where parts of the city are gentrifying really rapidly and parts of the city are are not gentrifying at all and seeing how how schools are involved in 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 both of those things, how closing schools becomes a mechanism for moving people out of the city, how people move to other places because of the schools. And um I guess this is where I would put in our crass pitch for uh, for people to support our podcast as part of our um, our new Patreon effort, we're putting together a reading list to go with each episode. I call it Jack's reading list, even though I'm the, really the one who does all the work. You do all the work for everything on the podcast. <laughs> and then the, in between episodes, I, I shuffle around wearing the, the demeanor of a martyr. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean in between podcasts? <laughs> to support us, all you need to go, do is go to patreon.com and search for Have You Heard? Or if you want to support us morally, uh, then jump on Twitter and uh, send us a message at Have You Heard Pod. Uh, if you've got an idea for a show, uh, feel free to reach out to us that way. Or you can email Jennifer since uh, she is both the brains and the brawn. I don't know what that leaves for me. Um, you can uh, you you can just send me like an emoji or something. <laughs> On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And if you're one of our Patreon supporters, stick around. We'll be heading into the weeds. Otherwise, we'll be back in a couple weeks. <laughs>